0: Continuing our dig into direct current archives, bringing back a few timely episodes that were originally released in 2017. In the conclusion to our two part series on the Manhattan Project, we take you to the Trinity site where the first bomb was tested, and then follow airmen as they drop the first ever atomic bombs. Later, learn about the creation of the Department of Energy and how, along with the National Park Service, we're preserving the origins of nuclear power and weaponry.
1: In answer to the question, was the development of the atomic bomb by the United States necessary, I reply unequivocally, yes. To the question, is atomic energy a force for good or for evil, I can only say, as mankind wills it. Brigadier General Leslie Groves.
2: Have a podcast
3: about energy. The jewels that these national labs are. In terms of science and scientific capabilities.
4: Big dreams can happen.
1: Keeping our nation safe. Clean
4: energy yeah. is of the way of the future. It's America's economic
0: engine.
1: It's science for the people.
3: This is Direct Current.
1: Previously on Direct Current.
3: Called it the Manhattan Project. It's that a self sustaining chain reaction had started. The chemists would have known they were working on uranium most of the others wouldn't have had a clue what they were working on
0: you think that people can't keep secrets but i found out that women can keep secrets
5: don't tell your neighbor anything that you wouldn't want to have spread that was secret
2: the los alamos function basically was we were the weapons design laboratory our goal was to design build and help figure out ways to deliver the nuclear weapons in combat.
6: In order for all the work to come together, they'd have to get the uranium from Oak Ridge and the plutonium from Hanford out to New Mexico.
3: Now they'd take it out of those collectors, put it in small gold lined coffee cup-sized containers, put two of them in a briefcase, strap it to an army lieutenant's arm, dress him up to look like a salesman, put him on a passenger train up through Chicago and out to Los Alamos. That's how every bit of the uranium for little boy got transported from Y-12 to Los Alamos. February 2nd,
1: 1945.
7: Los Alamos finally receives its first batch of plutonium, but none of it came easy. Los Alamos historians Alan Carr and Alan McGee help us tell this part of the story
0: groves is extremely concerned. We wouldn't want to lose any of this material. And so, um they they were they routed it all over the place. These were supposed to be secret <laughs> facilities, right? So you didn't want material uh being, you know, sent uh directly from Washington state to New Mexico because it, at that time people would have asked why what's going on? What, what's all this activity? Why are these two sites, you know, communicating and shipping things back and forth? You know, the same thing happened with just general material. We used the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque as sort of a, a mail stop or a drop box for a lot of the scientific equipment that had to go up to Los Alamos. And so it was a, it was part of UNM's role in World War II was to, to sort of funnel equipment to us so that it would look like it was going to a university setting and not up to Los Alamos.
7: And none of the facilities mentioned were as secret as Los Alamos Laboratory, also known as Project Y. Project Y was the last phase of the Manhattan Project. Their mission? To design and build the first atomic bombs. When the plutonium arrived, scientists quickly got to work to make the plutonium usable for the bomb.
1: April 12th, 1945.
7: After a long battle in declining physical health, President Franklin D. Roosevelt died at the age of 63. Vice President Harry S. Truman took the oath of office as president and is quickly briefed on the classified project known as Manhattan. May 7th,
1: 1945.
3: Throughout the world, throngs of people hail the end of the war in Europe. It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland. Years full of suffering and death. And sacrifice. Now the war against Germany is won.
7: But the war against Japan continued in the Pacific.
6: Summer, 1945. At Project Y, scientists and staff were preparing to conduct the Trinity Test, which was to ensure that all the testing, breakthrough, and labor to create a bomb would actually work. The exact origins of the code name Trinity are unknown, But in 1962, General Leslie Groves wrote to Oppenheimer about the origin of the name, asking if he had chosen it because it was a name common to rivers and peaks in the West and would not attract attention. Oppenheimer replied, I did suggest it, but not on that ground. Why I chose the
1: name is not clear, but I know what thoughts were in my mind. There's a poem of John Donne, written just before his death, which I know and love. What shall my West hurt me? As West and East and all flat maps and I am one are one so death doth touch the resurrection. Friday, July 13th, 1945.
6: The pitch-black curtain of night draped over the New Mexico sky. A small caravan of scientists saw the stars reflected in the glass of their synchronized watches that all struck one past midnight.
0: They were basically saying that they weren't superstitious. It's going to be sent down there on Friday the 13th.
6: The codename for the plutonium core and the non-nuclear components were called the Gadget. A specially designed army sedan began the journey from Los Alamos across winding mountain roads that were all dim and quiet. Through the stillness of night, down into the Rio Grande Valley, they traveled 7,000 feet in elevation, through Santa Fe, past Albuquerque, until finally arriving at Alamogordo to the Trinity site. A couple hundred miles
0: or so. Yeah, it's probably
2: about that. You know, It would take them pretty
0: much all day back then. Right,
2: It, it, it it would have been a long, long
6: trip. The Trinity site was set up with a 100-foot steel tower at ground zero. There were three observation bunkers located 10,000 yards north, west, and south of the tower. And the reason they put the device at the top of the tower was actually for photography.
2: Now back then, they didn't do a whole lot of photography just for sightseeing and historical purposes. They needed good photographs of the fireball so that they could measure it and get a pretty good calculation of the yield of the bomb. And so, if you set the bomb off on the ground, you just immediately have a bunch of dust. If you set it off on top of the tower, uh, you know, in the milliseconds, when the in the early milliseconds, when the bomb's going off, you can get some great photos of the fireball expanding.
6: Saturday, July Fourteenth, nineteen forty-five. On Saturday, the gadget was assembled, putting the plutonium into the high explosives. They left off the detonators at that time. Then it was raised to the top of the tower. But when they first attempted to do that, it didn't work. A moment of crisis.
2: You can imagine what it must have felt like for just a couple seconds there. As they tried to put the plutonium in, it didn't go in. The issue was that the uh, plutonium, it had warmed up. It had been in the hot sun. The high explosives was in the tent underneath the tower. And so realizing that the plutonium had slightly expanded, they let it cool off, made another attempt and they were able to put the bomb together. So that was the first thing that they overcame.
1: Monday, July 16th,
6: 1945. Hours before dawn, General Groves, the orchestrator, Ernest Lawrence, inventor of the cyclotron, J. Robert Oppenheimer, director of Los Alamos, and a few select others arrived at the Trinity test area. Everyone on hand was restricted to those bunkers. The sounds of nervous chatter were drowned out by the countdown over the PA system. Two, one... At precisely 5.30 that morning, the atomic age began. Seconds after the detonation came a huge blast, sending searing heat across the desert and knocking some observers to the ground. A steel container weighing over 200 tons, standing a half a mile from ground zero, was knocked over. The bomb vaporized the tower that was holding it, and when the fireball came in contact with the ground, it absorbed the sand. The sand then melted into a fireball and rained back down onto Earth and hardened the desert floor, turning the sand around the base to green glass. That glass would later be named trinitite after the Trinity test. The device released approximately 18.6 kilotons of power, which is equivalent to about 20,000 tons of TNT. That was higher than anybody had predicted. The New Mexico sky was suddenly brighter than many suns. Some observers suffered temporary blindness, even though they looked at the brilliant light through smoked glass. As the orange and yellow fireball stretched up and spread, a second column, narrower than the first, rose and flattened into a mushroom shape, thus, providing the atomic age with a visual image that had become imprinted on the human consciousness as a symbol of power and staggering destruction.
5: We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed, few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And press him, takes on his multi-armed form, and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought
6: that one way or another. Those chilling and infamous words belong to J. Robert Oppenheimer. The quote has become synonymous with nuclear weapons. It was spoken years later during a documentary about making the atomic bomb now, with a new card in his hand, President Truman confidently traveled to Berlin. July 17, 1945. President Truman, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin convened in Berlin at the Potsdam Conference. The conference was the last of the World War II meetings held by the big three heads of state and started the day after the Trinity test. That's one of the reasons why they wanted to conduct the Trinity test on July 16th or earlier, was so that the president knew going into the meeting that he would have a bomb in his back pocket. August 6th, 1945. The 9,700-pound uranium bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, is loaded onto the B-29 airplane, called Enola Gay. Navy Captain and Los Alamos Weaponeer Williams Deke Parsons keeps a progress log of the mission during flight. 0245, takeoff. From Tinian Island, the Enola Gay heads north by northwest towards the Japanese islands over 1,500 miles away.
1: 0300, started final loading of gun. 0315, finished loading.
6: Three hours later.
1: 0605, headed for Empire from Iwo. 0730, red plugs in.
6: The red plugs armed the bomb so it would
1: detonate if released. 0741, started climb. 0838, leveled off at 32,700 feet. The
6: primary target,
1: Hiroshima. A city with a population of 300,000. 0909, target Hiroshima
6: in sight. 0915 and a half, dropped bomb. 43 seconds later, a huge explosion lights the morning sky as little boys detonated 1900 feet above the city, directly over a parade field where the Japanese Second Army is doing calisthenics the pilot, Captain Tibbets, immediately dives away to avoid the anticipated shockwaves of the blast. 0916, flashed followed by two slaps
1: on plane. Huge cloud. 10, still in sight of cloud which must be over 40,000 feet
6: high. Captain Tibbets thinks he's taking gunfire. 1003, fighter reported. A second shockwave hits the plane. The crew looks back at Hiroshima. 1041,
1: lost sight of cloud 363 miles from Hiroshima with aircraft
6: being 26,000 feet high. The tremendous power of a single atomic bomb instantly destroyed 60% of the city of Hiroshima. Within hours of the attack, radio stations began playing a prepared statement from President Harry Truman.
5: A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms
1: are in development.
6: In the absence of a Japan surrender announcement, President Truman orders a second atomic attack to take place. August 9th, 1945. The 10,000-pound plutonium bomb, nicknamed Fat Man, is loaded onto the B-29 airplane called Boxcar. Commander and weaponier Frederick Dick Ashworth, another member of the Los Alamos team, keeps a progress log of the mission during flight. O347 takeoff. Boxcar and two observation planes take off from Tinian and head for its primary target, Kokira Arsenal, located at the southern end of Japan. 0400, charged green plugs to red prior to pressurizing. 0500,
1: charged detonator condensers to test leakage. Satisfactory. Five hours later. 0915, arrived rendezvous point at Takashima and circled, awaiting accompanying aircraft. 0920, one B 29 sighted and joined in formation. 1044, arrived initial point and started bombing run on target. Target was obscured by heavy ground haze and smoke. Two additional runs were made, hoping that the target might be picked up after closer observation. However, at no time was the aiming point seen. It was then decided to proceed to Nagasaki
6: after approximately 45 minutes had been spent in the target area. Pilot Charles Sweeney finds the weather conditions to be unacceptable and unwelcome above Kokira. Sweeney makes three passes over Kokira, then decides to switch to the secondary target, even though he only has enough fuel remaining for a single bombing run. 1150. Arrived in Nagasaki target area clouds greet boxcar as it approaches Nagasaki, home to the Mitsubishi plant that had manufactured the torpedoes used at Pearl Harbor. Approach to target was entirely by radar. At the last minute, a brief break in the cloud cover makes it possible for a visual target at 29,000 feet. At 1150, the bomb was dropped after a
1: 20-second visual bombing run. The bomb functioned normally in all respects.
6: Fat Man explodes 1,650 feet above the city with a force of 21,000 tons of TNT. 1205, departed for Okinawa
1: after having circled smoke column. Lack of available gasoline caused by an inoperative bomb bay tank booster pump forced decision to land at Okinawa before returning to Tinian. 1351,
6: landed at Yontan Field, Okinawa. All the factories and the buildings on the Yurakami River were destroyed. In total, about 45% of the city was no longer. August 10th, 1945. The very next day, Japan accepted the surrender terms. August 14th, 1945. The war that began for the United States with the surprise attack at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, was now over. Japan surrendered officially, ending World War II.
5: I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of the land.
6: But trying this new weapon came at a great cost. Little Boy killed seventy thousand people in Hiroshima, including about twenty American airmen being held as prisoners of war, and it injured another seventy thousand. By the end of 1945, the Hiroshima death toll rose to 140,000 as radiation sickness death tolls mounted. Five years later, the total reached 200,000. The fat man killed 40,000 people in Nagasaki, Japan, and injured 60,000 more. The total eventually reached 140,000, with a rate similar to that of Hiroshima. After the war, Americans were astounded to learn of the existence of a far-reaching, government-run, top-secret operation with a physical plant, payroll, and labor force comparable in size to the American automobile industry. In total, about 130,000 people were employed by the project at its peak, among them many of the nation's leading scientists and engineers. That total was almost the equivalent amount of people that were killed in Nagasaki.
7: The war might have ended, but that isn't where our story ends. In a way, it's where the story of the Department of Energy begins.
1: August 1st, 1946.
7: Almost exactly one year after the surrender in Japan, President Harry Truman signed the Atomic Energy Act, which transferred all Manhattan Project assets and responsibilities, to the Atomic Energy Commission, whose mission was the peacetime development of atomic science and technology.
1: August 15th, 1947.
7: The Manhattan Engineer District is abolished. What is clear as the Atomic Energy Commission takes over is that the success of the Manhattan Project helped cement the bond between basic scientific research and national security. Science had gone to war and contributed mightily to the outcome. The challenge confronting American policymakers in the post-war years was to enlist the forces of science in the battle to defend the peace. Even though the Manhattan Project was over, the places we talked about in part one, Hanford, Oak Ridge, Los Alamos, and various other sites around the country, continued to produce nuclear materials throughout the Cold War. This included work on the development of the world's first thermonuclear device, or hydrogen bomb. Meanwhile, through a series of reorganizations, name changes, and the addition of other offices,
1: the Energy Policy Office, the Federal Energy Office, Federal Energy Administration, the Energy Research and Development Administration, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission.
7: Almost exactly 32 years after the first bomb was dropped, on August 4th, 1977, the Atomic Energy Commission became what we know today as the U.S. Department of Energy.
3: Working with Congress, we've now formed a new Department of Energy headed by Secretary James Schlesinger.
7: And because the Department of Energy is a direct descendant of the Manhattan Project, we still own and manage most of the major Manhattan Project properties. So the question became,
8: what are we gonna do with these Manhattan Project facilities?
7: That's David Klaus, the Department of Energy's former Deputy Undersecretary for Management and Performance. He was crucial in figuring out what sites could be demolished and which should be preserved. We'll get back to him in a minute, but we have to point out that we've jumped ahead about 50 years here. During the last half century, nuclear waste at these facilities was not always disposed of in a manner that would meet today's environmental protection standards. In some cases, we're still dealing with the cleanup of these legacy nuclear sites. We even have an entire office dedicated to that cleanup, the Office of Environmental Management. It's also important to point out that scientific breakthroughs that led to the bomb also led to many other scientific breakthroughs that weren't weapons. Gary Peterson at Hanford breaks it down.
5: Radioactive medicine, health physics, many sciences that didn't exist in the 1940s came out of Hanford, Oak Ridge, and Los Alamos. Huge, huge developments. There were nine production reactors built. and The last one in the downstream flow of the Columbia River was called uh, F-reactor, and that's where they put biology, aquatic biology. They wanted to study the effects of radiation on, you know, fish, wildlife, uh, goats, all kinds of things. The, out of that grew an understanding of measuring radioactivity, measuring how much goes to bones, how much goes to skin, how you ingest it, and where it becomes harmful or helpful. And so many of the treatments for cancer today wouldn't exist if you didn't have that technology development and part of it started right here at Hanford.
7: Now back to David Klaus and the creation of a national historical park.
8: When I came to the department in 1998 we were at the point where all the Manhattan Project facilities were 50 years old or older and one of the requirements of national historic preservation law is that you must do a historic assessment when you take down any federal facility that's 50 years old or older.
7: As a former history major. He was excited to join the committee and help designate the most historically significant sites.
8: We came up with a plan which was to identify seven of the major sites that essentially together reflected all of what happened in the Manhattan Project and basically identify them as quote signature sites of the Manhattan Project.
7: Those sites are on the three locations that have been at the crux of our story. Oak Ridge, Hanford, and Los Alamos. The sites were validated by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, a government entity that, believe it or not,
8: Whose job it is is to advise federal departments and agencies on how to do historic preservation. And with that, we were then able to, frankly, take down literally thousands of old facilities that were contaminated, you know, that we couldn't afford to preserve.
7: These old facilities were carefully cleaned up and then torn down. Ben Williams, who works at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge office, explains that process.
2: So we take down the building first and then that allows us to rip up the slab and then if there are any issues uh, with the soil beneath it, we can address that. Anybody that would dig deeper than 10 feet in their development will have to get a special permit through us. So it's kind of the sequence that we go in.
7: The end goal at Oak Ridge is to transfer the land for private industrial use. But for some, it wasn't enough to just preserve these sites. They wanted to make them accessible, to really tell the story of the Manhattan Project to the American public. At the forefront was the B Reactor Museum Association, or Burma, in Hanford.
8: Would the park exist if it weren't for Burma? My frank answer is, no, I don't think it would.
7: That's Maynard Plahuta former Burma president.
8: And when the announcement came that uh, we we're going to close down the whole site with regard to producing the plutonium in the reactors, these people said, look, This B reactor is significant from the standpoint of it's the first in the world, the first of its kind. We really need to preserve it so that it doesn't become ancient history, so to speak, and everybody forgets about it.
7: So they created Burma. Thus began the challenge of forming a national historical park. Creating the first atomic bomb was one thing, but protecting the places that made it happen was quite another. Hanford's Gary Peterson explains what happened next.
5: At that point, there was a group at Oak Ridge, uh, Tennessee, Los Alamos, and here in the Tri-Cities.
7: Tri-Cities in Hanford, Washington.
5: Who all worked together with our congressional offices from New Mexico and Tennessee and, and here to get everybody supportive of a new national park, Manhattan Project National Historical Park. And so it wasn't one person, it was all of us.
7: It took over 10 years But in
1: December 2014,
7: the teamwork paid off as Congress passed the National Defense Authorization Act, which included provisions for the Manhattan Project National Historical Park. But how do you go about uniting a set of preserved buildings literally spread across the country into a single park? The superintendent of the Manhattan Project National Historical Park, Chris Kirby, has some idea.
0: And once it's established, there's a lot of administrative things that have to take place in order just to ensure the park is in the system and it can be staffed up and get its
7: budget and start running. And then once those foundational things are addressed... The National Park Service starts looking at things like what's already happening in the community, how interested is the community in the park, and what are their priorities? And I think the biggest, most critical thing to do is develop and maintain a good relationship with your gateway
0: communities, Communicate your park priorities and capabilities to the public and be very realistic with your expectations, especially in the first few years when budgets and staffing levels, they're often low or
7: non-existent. Many of these new parks are established after many years and sometimes decades of hard work by the communities. Like the fact that the people at Burma had already put in over a decade of emotional investment. But very often the
0: National Park Service is just learning about the park when it gets established. So often there's a disconnect there. And that's why those community relationships are so important is so that expectations can be realistic. And the National Park Service and its communities can, you know, proceed down a path where they jointly work together.
1: Which
6: brings us back to the present. 2017. The park has been established. And if you find yourself near Hanford, Washington, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, or Los Alamos, New Mexico... You can go visit and get yourself a shiny Manhattan Project Junior Park Ranger badge. Story over.
7: Well, not quite over. Even though the park is established, it's still going to take a while before all of those important sites are open to the public. Here's David Klaus and Gary Peterson.
8: I think we're probably at least a decade away from the park being able to be what most people think when you think of a park.
5: The fact that this is a national park that's in three locations, and it won't be owned by the National Park Service, it's going to be owned by DOE, is unique, really unique. But, the other uniqueness of this national park at Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, and here, is that all three sites are still working sites. And so how do you have a national park?
7: And the various sites are at different stages of being ready
4: to be open to the public. Hanford, for example, has been doing tours of the B Reactor for years. Welcome to the B Reactor. This is one of our newest national historical parks. So we're very proud to now be a part of the National Park Service. So why don't we come on inside and we'll get our tour started. And now as we come around this corner, you will indeed see the B Reactor itself. Well, welcome to the control room. I like to think of the reactor itself as being the heart of the matter out here. But here's the mind. At this wall over here, we have one whole wall that is full of nothing but knobs. So we are now in a humongous room. This is called the valve pit because we actually are going down into a pit. It's very huge and it's completely lined in concrete. Concrete floor, concrete walls, stairs, metal graded platforms all over the place. But more than anything else, what you see in this room are pipes. Lots and lots of pipes. They are probably at least 10 inches in diameter. They're either painted gray or silver.
7: And at Oak Ridge, you can visit the X10 graphite reactor.
3: Most of the facilities around this central campus area have now been either taken down or they're in the queue to get taken down as part of the environmental management program. The one exception, of course, is the graphite reactor, which is being preserved as a National Historic Site. So what you see here is the face of the reactor, uh, and those circular holes are actually the channels that the fuel get loaded into. There's some mannequins there kind of simulating the fuel loading. Most of this is pretty much as it was. The facility, as I said, it ran for 20 years. It was actually shut down on the 20th anniversary of First Criticality in 1963. Well, if you look at Oak Ridge National Lab today and the areas of research that we're in, you can actually see the fingerprints of what we did during the war.
7: But the buildings at Los Alamos are further away from being accessible for safety and security reasons. Unfortunately for a park visitor at Los Alamos today, most of the park is located within areas of the lab that are not publicly accessible.
0: So when we say... Behind the fence, that means it's code. Well, not code, but it's just a term for um, those are the areas that are not open to the public. And and they literally (laughs) are behind the fence and different types of fences, but there are fences all over the place. And there are checkpoints that you'd have to go through. I think... um, most people uh, could visualize um, a military uh, base uh, where you have uh, gates and checkpoints. So that would be that sort of, of feel, that's right? the kind of feel here at Los Alamos. You have to have a badge, just like in World War II, you had to have a badge to access different areas. You have to have need to know to access different areas. But there are opportunities for the public to see things that are related to the history of the Manhattan Project um, in downtown Los Alamos.
7: The National Park Service and the Department of Energy are working together to safely expand access to the facilities included in the park. We're also working with partners in the local communities and from around the world to tell the complete story of the Manhattan Project and its legacy.
6: So it'll take some time before you can get the full experience of visiting the various locations of the park. But the Manhattan Project National Historical Park is already having a big impact.
1: I met a woman this morning, about 9 o'clock this morning, she came into the museum she stopped and she stared at me and her jaw dropped. And she moved here in 1947 with her dad. Her dad worked over at Y-12 and she said, when did this become a national park? And she was, she was ecstatic.
6: That was Robbie Mayer, a National Park Service ranger at the Oak Ridge location. Guests who toured the B Reactor in Hanford have had similar reactions.
4: I think it's a great idea. I think lots of this knowledge is being lost. Um, our kids in school need to learn about this. Um, this is a good place to keep everything so that you can still see it.
6: And people from around the world have been
8: visiting the parks. Coming here now, uh, I could compare the situation in Fukushima and also the beer reactor here. i
3: really interested in the cleanup project about the Hanford site because uh, we have the uh, same situation uh, in Fukushima. So I think we can apply the techniques and know-how uh, into the Fukushima situations.
5: Demonstration of what our intellectual background is, or background, our intellectual resources are in the United States and our skilled resources, not
3: just natural resources, not a mountain something that brains and muscle did. When you sit in, in the, the classroom, sometimes you don't really understand what you can do with your education this, I think, is a true indication of what it takes to get something done and you know what you can do, what education can do for you.
7: Which is the whole point of a National Historical Park and this episode to help people learn about this world-changing moment in history.
8: It's an amazing scientific accomplishment that they were able to design and develop and move the science as quickly as they did. Um, the, the number of Unbelievably talented, skilled, capable scientists who got together to do one project at one time, uh, fully funded, uh, is, is not something that happens all that often. The Manhattan Project's one, the, you know,
6: going to the moon is another. In fact, the Manhattan Project was as much a triumph of engineering as of science. Without the initial spark from Albert Einstein, the innovative work of the talented Leslie Groves, as well as that of DuPont and others, the revolutionary breakthroughs in nuclear science achieved by Enrico Fermi, Niels Bohr, Ernest Lawrence, and their colleagues, and the ingenuity of J. Robert Oppenheimer, it could not have produced the atomic bomb that ended World War II. Despite numerous obstacles, the United States was able to combine the forces of science, government, military, and industry into an organization that took nuclear physics from the laboratory and into the battlefield. The weapon of terrible, destructive capabilities made clear the important nexus of basic scientific research and national defense.
7: Scientific progress like that doesn't come around every day, and neither do new national historical parks. This is a unique chance for the Department of Energy to work with the National Park Service and create an educational experience out of our roots. We can now bring people along on a walk in the shadows of scientific history. You can learn all about the Manhattan Project National Historical Park on our website, energy.gov slash Manhattan Project. There you'll find an extensive photo gallery of both past and present locations, video tours, and unique content not used in this podcast.
6: If you have questions about this episode or any other episode, you can email us, directcurrent at hq.doe.gov, or tweet at energy. If you're enjoying Direct Current, help us spread the word. Tell your friends about the show and leave us a rating or review on iTunes. We really appreciate your feedback.
7: We'd like to again give an atomic thank you to the folks at Oak Ridge. Jonathan Sitzler, Ben Williams, Ray Smith, Tom Mason, Claire Sinclair, and everyone else for their Southern hospitality.
6: At Hanford, thank you to Colleen French, Gary Peterson, Ann Vargas, Rick Bond, Whit Vogel, and Marcus Goach.
7: Representing Los Alamos, thank you to the dynamic duo of Alan Carr and Ellen McGee. Special thanks to Chris Kirby from the National Park Service.
6: And thank you to Ernie Ambrose for narrating our story. Thank you to Taylor Gray at Transition Music, Tracy Atkins and Tanya Taylor-Smith from the Office of Legacy Management, Terry Fainer Skip Gosling, and Eric Boyle in the Energy Department's Office of History and Heritage Resources. And finally, thanks to Vernon Heron, Bianca Katenis, Kayla Hensley, Bob House, and the Energy Public Affairs team, both past and present.
7: Direct Current is produced by Matt Dozier, Simon Edelman, and me, Allison Lantero. Art and design by Court Creer, With support from Paul Lester, Daniel Wood, and Antiqua RH.
6: We are a production of the U.S. Department of Energy and published from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C.
7: Thanks for listening.